Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Britt Bennett and Brian Washington, moderated by Jennifer Baker. It took place as part of the Portland Book Festival in November 2020. In the number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Vanishing Half, Britt Bennett weaves together multiple strands and generations of a family from the Deep South to California, from the 1950s to the 1990s. It's a story that considers the lasting influence of the past as it shapes her character's decisions, desires, and expectations. In Brian Washington's novel, Memorial, Mike and Benson are young men whose world is turned inside out as they find themselves living apart and forced to discover their own truths. Our moderator is Jennifer Baker, and she guides the conversation both into questions of craft, like how and why these writers created novels with multiple narrators, and just how much of their books they discovered in the writing. And she also dives into the central themes of both these books, race, love, family, inheritance, choice, and consequence, and how the dynamics of relationships are shaped by them. And a little later in our show, you'll also hear Amanda Bullock, our Director of Public Programs, fielding audience questions. Here's our moderator, Jennifer Baker. Thank you so much. I just want to emphasize how excited and happy I am to share a virtual space with you two because your books are two of my favorite that have come out this year. So I feel very honored and humbled to be able to even join a discourse with you both. So I want to start at the beginning because I am fascinated with beginnings. And it's it's interesting because both your stories start with arrivals and departures. Even in the first lines of your respective books, that's just like it hits us in the immediacy. And and I'm curious about how y'all settled onto that, because I don't want to presume that this was how it was from the outset or or anything about your writing methods and revision practices. But was there something specific once you did settle on these respective beginnings that you wanted to kind of let us as readers know about these characters and the relationships that we're going to be seeing over the course of your respective books? And Britt, would you like to start us off? Sure. Um, Yeah, usually with beginnings, I usually kind of know how I want to start something. I never know how I'm going to end anything, but I usually have a good idea of where I want to start. Um, and with this book, I really, I, I love books that are about um, women returning from someplace under mysterious circumstances. Um, so I love a mysterious return. Um, I love a book where somebody has returned and nobody, you know, really understands why they're back and what they've done and, and all of those types of questions. So I knew that I wanted to start with one of the twin sisters returning to this hometown. And not only that, but also returning with her daughter who is dark skinned and that causing kind of a stir within the town. Yeah, on my end, I think 
that I'm really fascinated with the ways that communities come together or don't, particularly when they're communities that one might at first glance not immediately associate with one another. So while I knew that there would be an arrival at the beginning of the book, I think I had to write it in order to see that there would be a departure at the end and also not only a departure, but a sort of why they're leaving, right? And under what circumstances and how the world has changed by way of their having spent time in that space. Um, it's, you know, it's a romance between uh, two young men and one of their mothers comes to sort of help them along within that relationship. And she's the one who is arriving at one point. Um, and she has to make this decision to stay or leave. And each of the sons to varying degrees also make that decision. So that idea of mu- movement really fueled where the novel went or didn't. And that just was really interesting to me. Hmm. And you speak of movement, Brian. I'm wondering about regions too, because Brett Mallard is such a firm character and it really holds a, a firm place in how people operate, especially Jude, who is the dark-skinned daughter of Desiree, who returns in the very beginning. And with Benson and Mike and the arrival of Mike's mother at the beginning of his book, and also that, you know, culture differentiation, right? That Benson doesn't know how to operate in this. this, At least that's how I was reading it. And and it seemed like that's how he was expressing it. It was like, not okay, don't know how to handle this. And, And is there something respectively about being stationary, but also trying to find that level of movement where you're figuring out who you are for your characters? Did they have to leave to figure something out for themselves? Or do you feel like that was kind of critical to people's respective stories? I'll go to Brian on that one. Switch it up. That's such a great question. I think that I'm really concerned with this idea of home and the ways that home can shift for a character, whether that's a geographic place, whether that's a family, whether that's a history, or whether home is a feeling for a particular character and how that feeling can change as characters move from one context to another. So I think that they had to leave their respective contexts, if not their respective geographic points. Um, Mike leaves uh, one region, goes to another and comes back. Ben doesn't really go anywhere as far as like a major geographic shift is concerned, but they're both finding themselves in radically different contexts from the one that they begin with at the beginning of the narrative. So this question of who a person is when they're no longer told who they're meant to be or when they're no longer within the context that sort of forced itself upon them or told them they have to be a certain way was really important to me. So even if not a sort of physical displacement, I think that a shift needed to occur for every one of the characters in order for them to have, you know, a sort of foundation to look back on so they can see uh, where they came from. Yeah, I love that. I think that idea of movement leading to these shifts in identity. Of course, it's not always necessary for it to be like a physical movement, like Brian was saying. Um, But I love stories that do that. And I think in this book, I have these twin sisters that were from this small hometown that is very oppressive in a lot of ways. Um, They both leave that town together and then kind of scatter in their separate ways. And one returns at the beginning of the book and the other one has not. 
Um, so that question of who they become, I think that physical separation and that physical movement is an impetus to, to them changing and to them entering onto their separate paths as well as some of the other characters in the book. Um, I think that, that that separation from your family and from your home community and the freedom that that potentially affords you in determining who you are free from uh, free from those social pressures. <laughs> I think that's really important for a lot of characters in the book. Uh, but I also was really interested in what Desiree's experience is like returning home. Uh, she has kind of gone out into the world, become a different person and then returned to her home. And what is the way in which that return is something that also shapes her in a way that her sister's uh, departure shapes her too. Mm-hmm. I have a specific question for you, Britt, in regards to the generational POVs that were granted in The Vanishing Half and how we're hearing from the mother-daughter perspective. And I have a kind of similar question for you in this regard, Brian, but I'll tell it separately. Um, and, and I'm really curious about... I. I mean, generational novels are really my my jam. You know, that's my bread and butter. And I'm like, it's telling us, you know, stories over a hundred years. I am sold. That is my book. (laughs) (laughs) Give me that book. Um, And in The Vanishing Half, when we have the twin sisters and then they have the daughters and, and the viewpoints that we're getting of trying to understand one another, right? And I'm curious how you kind of pursued that. Or I don't know if you knew from the outset or, and, and I sometimes feel like this is an unfair question for authors of like, did you know throughout the whole process of writing it? Or, you know, did your characters direct you to these? And everyone's different. But I am curious if you were able to speak to that of tapping into those perspectives of what those, you know, Stella and Kennedy and Jude and Desiree were kind of thinking of and what, what they were kind of moving towards for themselves in The Vanishing Half. Um, yeah, I didn't know at all. I thought that the book would only be about the sisters. I thought there would be half of the book would be Desiree, half of the book would be Stella. That would be nice and neat, and that was going to be the book. Um, of course, it never turns out to be that simple, usually, when you're working on something. Um, and as I was working on it, I realized I was really interested in their daughters. Uh, Jude, Desiree's daughter, Jude, is the child that you literally meet in the first page of the book. So I knew I was interested in what her experience would be like growing up in this really um, toxic and, and violent environment of Mallard. Um, and then I later became interested on in kind of the opposite side of that, which was Stella's daughter, her daughter growing up in this white, uh, ritzy community in LA. What is her life going to be like? So I kind of discovered that uh, partway into the process that I wanted it to be a generational story. And I wanted the story to feel like it was kind of passing the baton from character to character. And you were just following these mostly women throughout their lives. Um, I, I love those types of stories too. I think what you were saying is the idea of the, there being these missed conversations uh, between and among generations. I think people talking past each other, uh, failing to actually talk to each other in connecting ways. That's something that I've always been really fascinated by. So I love the idea of being able to explore it within this family that is a very fractured and very complicated family. Sure, sure. And Brian, with Benson and Mike, there's such a level of evasiveness that is somewhat triggering. <laughs> you know, it's very relatable for me, Brian. <laughs> Which is a compliment. That's a high. That's high praise. <laughs> but with Benson and Mike, there's this inability to talk to their parents or to actually be in the same room at some moments with their their parents to actually have those, as Britt said, missed conversations. 
Uh, can you speak a little bit to that of, of like how you wanted or maybe how that just kind of organically came about in the process as we're looking at Benson and Mike's relationship and them as individuals and how you might have wanted to talk about those generational divides? Yeah, I mean, I think that Britt's description was just so lovely, you know, like on my end, I usually have what I want to do and then there's what actually happens and there's a pretty significant rift between the two. But at some point it made a sort of sense that I wanted to write a narrative about communication in a lot of ways and the different ways that characters communicate with one another. So Ben and Mike and Mitsuko, who's Mike's mom, they oftentimes are reaching toward one another and oftentimes they end up just short and not because of a lack of effort, but any number of circumstances keep them from closing that gap, whether it's a literal mistranslation, whether it's a sort of metaphorical mistranslation. So the question of how they filled that gap was one that stuck with me throughout writing the book, whether it was through texting with one another, whether it's through sending one another photos, whether it's through the language of cooking, the act of cooking for someone and giving them nourishment and comfort and pleasure through that and trying to see how characters connected with one another when there were barriers between them was a overarching concern for each of them because I wanted to have each character in a position that they had the capacity for connection and they had the capacity for love. I didn't want it to be a question of whether or not they could so much as just how, because that how was the narrative that I wanted to read. And I also didn't want to have a narrative that was operating in binaries as far as what a relationship, whether familial or romantic, should look like one way or another, or it was like a good or a bad one, you know? Um, Even if folks in each character's lives didn't perhaps have the language to reach toward them, I didn't want them to be cast off by way of that. I wanted them constantly to be reaching toward one another. So that, that question of whether their advances will be accepted, whether they'd be able to bridge that gap or whether each party will have to make a reconciliation with one another, right? When a you know queer son is trying to build a relationship with his father who doesn't have a language, is mildly homophobic, but is trying, a narrative in which that father is just sort of cast off and just deemed as bad is not the one that I'm interested in reading. And it's certainly not the one that I'm interested in writing because there are layers, I think, within that relationship. So really parsing the layers between folks attempting to come together and whether they can or not was really important to me across generations and also just like more local, like within the same uh, household in some cases. And both of you think very thoughtfully, obviously, about the work that you produce and and what you're gifting us in terms of the books that you, you publish and bring into the world. And I'm curious about how the evolution of character building happens for each of you, uh, because it, it, it is mired in a, a lot, right? <laughs> I mean, just, you know, just say as the kids say, it's a lot you know, of who these characters are and what their journey is really going to actually present for them in terms of what they're learning, what they're seeing, who they're engaging with, as you both have said, and, and, and what 
you really want to present in this story? What is the story about? And it can't be that simplistic. It's just not possible. Um, so, I, and maybe this is a really big question to ask you in this forum, but can you speak to that? Can you speak to a little bit about the character development? Like Britt, you mentioned that you thought this was just going to be about the twin sisters and how, like, how did it actually go for you in terms of the writing process and or revision process of like implementing those additional people? And also, Brian, I'm curious if Mike's section was always part of this book. Because um, it was a little bit of surprising for me. I read it um, on on a Kindle. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily get to flip through in the same way. And I was like, oh, we're hearing from Mike now. This is interesting. And I actually, you know, I, I love Benson's voice so much because he just sounds he just sounds like my bestie. In all honesty, I'm like, yeah, you, you tell him you're mad, Benson. Tell him. <laughs> and, and then I'm hearing from Mike, who I actually really wanted to learn from. And I think after us living with someone like Benson, you know, you get used to it and because you believe and understand where he's coming from. But we kind of do need that alternate viewpoint as well. Uh, so I don't know if, Britt, you would like to start? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it for me is uh, learning how to recognize what I'm interested in and who I'm interested in. Um, sometimes I think when you start to write, I think like Brian was saying, you have one idea of what you think you're going to do. And then sometimes you end up doing something really different. And a lot of that for me is following what's interesting and what's boring. And that sounds very simple. Um, I think it often doesn't present itself in that way. Um, often it's several drafts into something when I realize, oh, I actually don't care about that. Or, oh, I actually am not that interested in that relationship. Um, I actually don't really want to see those people again. Um, and, uh, and I think the alternative of that is just chasing what is really fascinating to you. So a character like Early, who's this kind of bounty hunter in the book, he was somebody who was originally a very minor character. Um, but once I wrote in his point of view, I loved writing that point of view and, and inhabiting this perspective of this, you know, bounty hunter, which is it's probably as far away from who I am as any fictional character can be. Um, I share nothing in common with him and I really loved his voice and I loved kind of being um, in his head and imagining him, his role in this story. Um, so you'll see characters like that who will kind of pop up and really grab you. And those are characters that you do want to spend time. So to me, a lot of the writing process is about recognizing that, recognizing the difference between boredom and interest <laughs> and um, and deciding to go in the direction of what's really exciting. And I think uh, I, I'm always more interested in writing about relationships than I am in writing about characters by themselves. Uh, I think you can learn a lot about a character who's alone and I enjoy that. Uh, but also I, I love relationships. I want to see dynamic duos. I want to see um, people who uh, bring out interesting things in each other, people who uh, make life difficult for each other. Um, I think that's one of the things that I really liked about Brian's book is that you have these pairings of characters often and in a way that generates, uh, it generates tension when these two people are together in a room alone. You don't know what's going to happen as a reader but it also reveals who they are. And uh, for me, it's, it's about finding those types of dynamics and finding those types of relationships and which characters are going to bounce off of each other in interesting ways and prioritizing or spending time uh, with those characters and, and allowing them to inhabit the book. So I just try to be open-minded and I try to divorce myself from any previous notion that I had of what I planned for the book and really just follow who's exciting to me and who kind of jumps off the page. 
Yeah, I mean, I so agree with Brett in that, like, and I feel like in The Vanishing Half, like, that excitement is, like, really palpable, you know? And it draws you in as a reader, and it really makes you want to, like, spend time in that world. Um, on my end, I think my process is similar in that I'm really only interested in four or five things. So the question of <laughs> how do I extract those things for like so i'm not like writing the same shit over and over again like how do i come up with a narrative i want to live in and that i want to spend time in is always on the forefront of my mind uh, but i knew with memorial i think the three things offhand like i knew that there was an emotional pocket that i wanted the narrative to end up in although i did not know how i would get there i knew that Mitsuko, who is Mike's mom, she would be the emotional center of the novel in a lot of ways, because it is a novel of arrivals and departures. Benson and Mike, who are the sort of romantic duo at the center of it, they don't spend very much time in the same place over the course of the book. And Mike's mom is who ties them together in a lot of ways. And in many ways, she sees more of them than they see of one another. And I think the third thing that I knew offhand was that I wanted to give as close to equal credence to Mike and Ben as I could. Um, and the current draft, like the final one that people have in their hands, Ben has about 1,100 more words more than Mike. And like it was like, the goal of mine, like to get it as close to one to one as possible, but I wasn't good enough to do that. But it was really important to me, like to come up with a relationship through which we, like the reader, like the audience, like you didn't walk away thinking like, oh, okay, like this whole relationship is really fucked up and it's like all Ben's fault, or vice versa, it's all Mike's fault, or it was saved and it was solely due to Mike or solely due to Ben and so on, right? And trying not to lean into that meant. To me, I felt that I couldn't illustrate the relationship from a prescriptive lens, partly because I'd be really reductive and partly because that wasn't the world that I wanted to occupy for the length of writing um, the novel. And I think that I had to finish it to figure out where it would ultimately end up because I just didn't know. And that, you know, once I did end up there, like that was the ending, but it took some time to get there. So as far as like developing the characters, a lot of my impetus for writing the book was to see who the characters were and where they would end up because they were just that interesting to me, you know? So much of, you know, my drafting process is trying to build a world and trying to find characters that are that interesting to me that I'm willing to sit with them for like three years or however long, you know, because I think it's important to, you know, follow your obsessions or like follow your concerns. And if there are things that you feel as if though, you know, you're, you're that wedded to, then perhaps, uh, you know, that's the route um, to follow, or at least it was for Memorial in my case. And tapping into romantic relationships, which came up, I adore, and I cannot say it enough, adore, adore Reese and Jude. They're like the healthiest couple I've read in a book in the longest <laughs> amount of time ever. Kudos to you. Because <laughs> I found it, it was just a relief to read those. And it's not as though Vanishing Half to me was just like a traumatizing book. It, it, I didn't ingest it in that way. 
But I have to say that when we got to those passages, there there was such a security there, even though that they respectively had their own insecurities, right? But together, none of that seemed to really matter because the love was so deep for those two. And then we have Kennedy, who's chasing something. (laughs) And, And I'm curious about if you can speak to this, and I say that a lot because I, I, I don't want to like kind of put pressure on authors to answer things that may come off as hypotheticals, but with Reese and Jude, and then we have Kennedy, and what Jude seems to be very aware of herself, and it is, again, coming from negative space, right, of being raised in Mallard, where Kennedy is so uncertain of self, and she has such privilege. And, and I don't know, like, can you speak a little bit into that? you know, kind of creating their kind of respective paths in the vanishing half and how that kind of came about and whether you knew it's like, I really wanted Jude to have this and I really foresaw Kennedy to have this due to their respective relationships in space and with their mothers, which is complicated. Yes. Um, I mean, well, the first thing I'll say is, is I'm glad that you enjoyed um, Jude and Reese. I think that that's definitely the relationship in the book that readers want to talk to me about the most and readers are the most just happy about. Um, and they're certainly the healthiest couple I have ever written. I just, I, I've just, I've like right? joked about, you know, my first book like centered around a very toxic relationship. My next project also centers around a toxic relationship. So I hope that people enjoyed Jude and Reese, because it's probably never happening again. Um, so I hope everyone enjoyed, um, yeah, a healthy relationship. Um, so, um, so that, and I, I think as far as uh, Jude and Kennedy, I think what I was thinking about with again with these dynamic duos, um, you know, it's, it's like a cheesy phrase, but it's something that I think about a lot because, like, who are the two interesting characters that I can pair up, and what are they going to be like together? There were very natural pairings in the book. Like, okay, I know that the twin sisters, they've got a dynamic. Or Desiree and her mother, they've got a certain dynamic. Desiree and her daughter. Um, but then there were these other larger questions of like, well, what are these two people going to be like if they end up in a room together? If they're like in a car, or if they're, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, at a party or whatever, what is their dynamic going to be? And June Kennedy were so fascinating to me because they are genetically half siblings. Um, but they are these sort of antagonistic cousins um, who have a very uh, fraught relationship. And to me, like one of the questions with that is sort of, you know, aside from the specific context of the book where their lives are divided along race and class and all of these other things, you know, I think about my cousins and I'm like, if we, if I did not grow up with my cousins and I met them when I was 20, would we be friends? Um, and you could ask yourself that about, you know, siblings or whatever other blood relation you have, sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. Um, you know, sometimes a lot of those dynamics are forged in a specific way because you grew up and you went to grandma's house together and you had Christmas or whatever. You have those types of relationships. So with Jude and Kennedy, it was like not only are these people raised in these very vastly different ways, but also they grew up, you know, miles apart and Kennedy had no awareness of Jude. So they have this really uneven terrain that they're entering. The fact that Jude is the one who, as you said, who has a lot of disadvantages that she's uh, that she's had in life um, and the nature of growing up in this pretty impoverished uh, black rural town. Um, but at the same time, in the situation with Kennedy, there's a, there's a way in which she has a little bit of the power. 
Um, she's the one who's gifted with like a superior sense of knowledge. And the fact that she just knows who Kennedy is and she knows who Stella is and Kennedy knows nothing. Um, she has that uh, in addition to, as you described, her self-awareness. She also has like an appropriate awareness of the situation that she is in where Kennedy has just like stumbled into it blindly. <laughs> so there was a lot in that dynamic that was really fun to explore. And the whole book I was writing it just thinking, you know, what is it going to be like to get these two characters alone together? Um, and I, it was the part of the book that I struggled with the most. I would say I found it really challenging because these were people who you had not previously seen together. And I knew that uh, I wanted it to really land when you actually did see them interact. But I think those types of relationships are so much fun. The ones that are kind of unexpected, the ones that maybe don't get a lot of screen time together. But just when you have two people whose circumstances and also whose personalities are going to necessitate some type of tension when they're alone, like these two, two people do not want to be alone together. Those are the two people that you have to you have to make them be alone together at some point in the book. I don't like believe in writing rules, but that's one of my rules for myself is like when you have a pair like that, you got to get them alone together. Speaking of putting people alone together who may or may not <laughs> need, need to be alone together. <laughs> Looking at you, Brian. <laughs> With Benson and Mike, I feel like, the expertise of, of Memorial is that there's never, for me, I'll speak for myself, and never, it, it was never in denial to me that they loved each other. It was about how they went about it and if they knew how to love each other. That seemed to me to be a kind of overarching thing hanging over both of these particular characters and obviously other people come into play. If it's just figuring this out and like, is this my first relationship? How is this? What are the rules? Da, da, da. And still not necessarily speaking to that. Again, not conveying. And as you were saying earlier about what we do and don't say, but have opportunity to. So as you're writing Memorial, how are you kind of approaching that on the page of they can be violent, volatile towards each other and, and say nothing and then be so sensual with each other. And there's so much that we're able to read in that. And do you think that's also amplified because this is first person and that kind of helps us to be able to, if not see it, intuit it? I think it is, right? Like, I don't, I think that's something I'd have to think about for a while, like how much the perspective itself plays into that. Because I think that the lack of a sort of overarching gaze or a sort of foundational narrative or foundational voice silos the reader and the audience into you know one vantage point solely which is one of the reasons that that shift between ben's pov and mike's pov when it does happen can seem so abrupt because i mean like you said like you spend a good deal of time living with someone so to speak and you're in your mind in their mind and you have their interiority and then you have a guys of the folks in their lives right like we spend a good deal of time with ben and we see mike initially and for you know however many odd pages solely through ben's eyes so we come up with this very specific picture of mike so that when we're finally in mike's vantage point and we're revisiting a lot of the same moments that we had with ben but from this other angle it 
can be a bit jarring, but I also think it's deeply necessary because what was interesting to me to both write and also the sort of thing that I wanted to read was to give the reader like a composite image of this relationship in lieu of a pictorial of moments that went wrong, right? Um, That wouldn't have been interesting to me and that would have been really reductive, especially as someone who like grew up sort of willing characters in two relationships like specifically characters that may or may not have been queer right like the author doesn't really say but there are like four different asterisks and maybe if i move this paragraph from this part of the book to this other part of the book or maybe if i you know only include like these eight sentences like i can make it happen right so because like i was that child and so far as i did read it all like about queer relationships and trying to figure out the ways that they contort themselves or don't but A part of that contortion is trying to give characters the freedom to make bad decisions. Um, I did not want to write a narrative in which all of the characters were hitting their cues, where Mike and Benson were deeply thoughtful about all of the decisions and interactions that they had with one another. And they considered everything four, five, six, seven times before they made those decisions because that's not a simulacrum of life, which is what I wanted to reach toward on the page. And that sometimes you just do things and then you're able to reflect on it afterwards that perhaps that wasn't the right move, but you don't know what to say to that person. So, you know, it just sort of sits there trying to figure out how to take a moment like that and put it on the page was largely the result of just drafting and just editing it so that the silences that Ben and Mike share or any of the other characters share felt as if though they were true to life. Um, But that was the sort of book that I wanted to read where characters are free to make mistakes, right? But also where they're free to attempt to come back together to one another. And I think it goes back to like, for me, I guess like that idea of like every character having the capacity to love. Um, I did not want it to be a question, like, as you said, as to whether Ben and Mike loved one another, whether they felt deeply for one another. But I did want the question to be how each of them viewed love as like an idea, a relationship as an idea. And as they changed, if that idea changed as well, if they were ever able to connect, if they were able to come back to one another, and if they were able to see the respective changes in one another and still decide, okay, now I see this person, I see what they need, I see who they are, um, can I give them that? Um, and how can I give them that? And if I don't, then you know what happens then? Is there a reconciliation that Ben needs to make? Is there a transaction that Mike is on the other side of that he's perhaps not getting what he wanted out of it and where does that leave him? Really playing with that idea of what can be the transactional nature of partnerships and relationships um, is something that I found myself parsing and like returning to in a bunch of various contexts because it's just really interesting and there's not really a definitive answer to any of those questions so you can take it in a lot of different places I think. So is there anything either of you kind of wish you did get to talk about about these books thus far that you haven't gotten to kind of explore in conversations so far? That's fine if there isn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, there's some questions you, you get asked a lot. Um, there's some questions that really startle you, surprise you. Um, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I 
I think what I do enjoy talking about is just like, yeah, the relationships between and among the characters, because I think the fact that people are reading the book and having some type of emotional reaction to people who exist in your mind is, is always something that's very cool. And I think for me, like I said, I'm mostly interested in relationships. Um, so that's what I enjoy talking about, I think the most. And I think also what people like to talk about is, is at least for the readers I've talked to so far. I mean, I think, I think a thing that was really important to me was to write a romance in which uh, characters from marginalized communities were in conversations with themselves as opposed to a refraction or a reaction to whiteness, which is something that was really important to me because I did not get to read it the way that I wanted to read it. Um, so I felt like I had to write this particular book in order to read that. And the way in which people have been really open to that, the way in which folks from a myriad of communities have been really open to that has been really nice and really lovely to talk about. I feel like people get really intense when they care. And that's understandable because I'm also a, that kind of person, but I can only imagine if like, someone came up to you, each of you and was like, F Mike, he needs to get it together. <laughs> like, Stella. Stella, don't get me started on that. <laughs> I can only imagine, like, Britt, have you gotten just, like, the most weird reactions to Stella? Of just, like, how dare she? Um, well, honestly, that's what I expected. And, um, no, people actually kind of like Stella. Really? People hate Kennedy. I think that's the one that people <laughs> drag. Um, but people like Stella. Yeah, weirdly. I thought she would be the one that everyone hates, but usually they drag Kennedy. Kardashian vibes <laughs> from Kennedy. <laughs> the name starts with a K. Yeah, Come on. <laughs> Thank you so much. We do have uh, the uh, at request. The audience questions have poured in, so I do want to to turn to those for y'all. There's a question that's specific to Brian, but I'm going to expand it to both of you. Um, but I do want to read the question from the person. Um, David says that Houston plays a big role in your work. Can you speak about place as character more than mere backdrop? Um, so I wonder, Brian, if you could talk about Houston in your work. And Britt, you've written about California more than once, which is where you're from. So maybe you could talk about how that plays a role in your work. Um, but we'll start with Brian. It may not seem it because I've been able to monetize it, but I actually do like Houston. <laughs> like it's a city that I actually do care a good deal about. And I like writing, you know, <laughs> stories that are saying because I like the city. But I also think that as someone who's really interested in this idea of like found families and the ways in which communities can come together or don't to have a city that is so wildly diverse um, and in which many communities, many, many communities are finding a way to make it work, not solely out of necessity, but just because they want to and they have a choice as to whether or not they want to. Um, that's really interesting to me, right? Like it's really interesting to have a character like Mike, who is a, queer Japanese American cis guy who finds a home in the third ward, which is one of the country's oldest black neighborhoods and thinks of himself as a product of that neighborhood and gives back to it. And the neighborhood thinks the same. Um, like if I met Mike, like if I just saw him out in the world, like I wouldn't think twice about it because that's just how the city is. But, you know, obviously that's not the case for the overall majority of the country. Whereas like a character like Benson, you know, cis black dude just living his life, <laughs> finds the closest iteration of family that he's privy to and an older Japanese woman, right? So living in a city where those sorts of pairings and those sorts of interactions aren't 
forced, like they're very natural. It's just something that you see out in the world is something that I think is really interesting, right? And if I'm following my interests, that warrants writing about, but also there's a warmth, I think, in Houston that I've been privy to and that I've been really privileged to have that I have only me myself experienced in Osaka, like a variation of that warmth. And because these two cities are so unlike one another in so many different ways, the fact that they share that warmth um, is a connection. And having these two unlike things share a connection is like a narrative, right? Like, cause there's a question there. So following that question was important enough to me to write a book about it. I love that. Um, I love Houston. I was telling Brian before that I have a lot, a lot of family down there. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, I didn't, I never thought of this as a book that would take place in a, as many locations as it ultimately does. I thought it would be mostly just in this town, um, but then it sort of sneakily became kind of a California novel. It became a novel that took place in lots of different locations. Uh, but I think this was the point at which I finally kind of just embraced the fact that like, yeah, I am a California writer. Um, this is what I am uh, often very interested in. Um, so I think that uh, it, for me, part of it was uh, biographical. My mom is from Louisiana. My dad is from LA. Um, so there was kind of a natural bridging of, bridging of both sides of my family by exploring that. Um, but I also just love the idea of writing into the myth of California, uh, the myth of California being a place of reinvention, California being a place of pretense, um, all of the sort of violence that comes around, comes along with the myth of California and exploration in the West and colonization, all these things that are, that are wrapped up in the mythology of California much more complicated understanding of what California means than when you're like a child at gold rush day or whatever we did in our learning about uh, California as a kid. Um, there is this, you know, obviously very romanticized uh, idea of California that's exported as it is um, one of our greater greatest uh, exporters of story in this country. Um, but I wanted to complicate that in this book and think about um, all of the ways in which uh, the sort of mythologies of California speak to the mythologies of that these characters are operating with, uh, within as, as far as regards to race and identity. Yeah. Do you have, Britt, do you have any like um, favorite California books that you... You know, I was, I was asked that before. I don't know if I, I like my mind went blank as soon as I was asked. Like I've never read anything about California. Um, so yeah, it's hard to, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, but I think that like... Uh, I, I think about, like I said, those tensions within what it means. And particularly for my, like my family, like I said, my, my, my uh, dad's mother was from Arkansas and they ended up in LA. Um, and I think often I read so much about, you know, this great migration of, of black people from the South to Chicago, Detroit, um, New York, you know, but I, I didn't read as much about people going West, although that's what a lot of people did. So I think that I, that notion of that migration, um, those types of things, um, you know, that, that's what I think drew me into thinking about California in that way. Nice. Brian, do you have any other like Texas books or Houston specifically kind of that you, are there other people like exploring Houston in ways that you think are interesting or movies or art or anything really? Yeah, so when I, when I think of Houston and narrative, like I immediately think of Solange Knowles, like she's who is exploring the sonic possibilities of, of Houston, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I suppose like it's in, tangential to that. I think that 
the I mean, Houston is like a city of like so many different myths, you know, like you have the black cowboys, right? Like you have the massive Latinx population that is like created and like made the economy in a lot of ways around which the rest of the city's residents are sort of revolving. You have um, the Vietnamese population, which is just so vibrant, right? And like all of these narratives are like in confluence with one another. And that makes it like a really exciting space to just be in perhaps a little bit less exciting because we should be in quarantine. Like we should not be interacting with one another, but like on a regular day, like it's a nice thing to be a part of. Um, at the same time, I do think that American literary fiction is not over inundated with narratives that are set in Houston, but I'm really excited for publishers to take the call to diversify the regions from which they are willing to accept their narratives. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Thank you both for those answers. We have a, I'm going to rephrase this question just a little bit. Um, but I think what the person's asking about is when you have what is commonly referred to as writer's block or when you're feeling like you can't figure out what it is you want to say. And I'm going to put this to all three of you. So maybe I'll start with Jen this time. Um, and maybe if you want to take that in a way to sort of start about, talk about your writing process and if that's changed recently. Jen, you do a lot of writing. So do you want to, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, theoretically, before 2020, I did. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) Uh, I I think it's, you know, it's great because Brian and Britt also touched on this in the conversation of just like, who do you want to spend time with? And I think that's so crucial in in what you delve into, especially someone who receives pitches and essays. It's very evident when people don't want to live with that essay or that story because they want it to get published. They want it to be brilliant. And, and it, it's such a time, you know, investment for you to just figure that out. And that can take months, years, weeks. Um, so for me, my practice is I have an idea. I see if I know where it begins and, and how and like who the characters are, what voice works, you know, third person, close third person, first person. Do I want to experiment with second person? Da, 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 da. And then I have a very uh, a trusted critique group who I eventually take some form of draft to and who usually helps me get it to a certain place. But I think uh, inherently I've gotten to a place where I know if I love something enough to want to figure it out and struggle through it or not. And I think that's just an individual journey. Britt, do you want to say anything? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I think it's been a hard year for, for everybody and for all of the obvious reasons. Um, but it's also, I think, been a hard year for a lot of people to focus on writing anything. Um, so I think for me, a lot of it is just one, um, recognizing that and giving myself forgiveness um, if I cannot get done what I want to get done. Um, but I think also just like reevaluating what I consider progress. Um, I don't sit down, like I don't give myself word count goals. I don't tell myself I'm going to revise this and I'm going to fix all of the problems in it. Like I know that that's not going to happen. So I sit down, if I can, you know, write something that day that makes me happy, that's when. If that's a sentence, if that's like one idea, if I recognize something was wrong in the project that I didn't know previously, then that's successful. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of that has been my process, particularly this year, is just reevaluating what I consider to be successful and, and not um, sort of lionizing this idea of productivity. I think I think a lot of us are having that, that realization that productivity is very overrated. Um, so trying to just reorient myself in a way that feels more both healthy for me and also just 
healthy for the project. Thank you for that answer. Brian, did you want to comment on this? I don't think that I could say it better than Britt just said it, you know, like in a lot of ways, I think that 2020 has been an experiment in reevaluating the nature of productivity and whether productivity is actually fruitful for the person who is doing the producing, right? And how. So I Mm -hmm. think that just being kind to yourself, right? Like being gentle with yourself and understanding the sort of circumstances from which, you know, you're trying to produce something or perhaps not the most fruitful (laughs) circumstances from which to produce something, right? But within that, I think that there's a way in which our particular industry can have like an undue emphasis on the production act of the writing process, to put it mildly. But I think that all of it is, you know, writing, you know, like if you're reading your peers, if you're exploring your interests, like if you're going for a walk, like if you're just like existing and like taking part in the world and whatever capacity um, you're able to do that for your respective context, it's all a part of the process and allowing yourself to take the time that you need and to exist in the space that you find yourself. That's, you know, that is a part of the writing process. So, you know, just trusting yourself and also being kind to yourself and not necessarily generally or specifically looking at the market as an indicator of what productivity is or like its value, right? Like all of the books that are, I mean, we're so privileged to have so many great books coming out like this year alone, but just the way that the publishing industry is tracked like these books were written like well before you know 2020 was set upon us and the sort of circumstances in which we found ourselves are impressed upon us right so it's like that that's a mirage and it's a veil right it's not as if though folks are constantly being this productive although it can certainly seem that way particularly when we're sort of siloed in our um, individual spheres so really just being kind with yourself and following your interests even if those interests don't look immediately or even peripherally marketable because if you know you're interested in it then it has validity and it has value that was a conversation between Britt bennett and brian washington from the portland book festival in november 2020. the 2021 portland book festival lineup has just been announced the festival will take place from november 8th to the 13th online on the radio and in person for more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Krista Ligori for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock, with support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.